Our text this morning is the last part of the Good Shepherd Discourse in John chapter 10, the gospel lesson we just read. And the text shows the Jews, Jewish leadership, apparently calling Jesus to a decision. But as is often the case, and as this passage will show, they are going to get more than they bargained for. And so we're going to make three points. They're there on the back inside page of your bulletin. Three points. The works and unbelief, the security and the sheep, the security of the sheep, and deity and blasphemy. So the first point in this text from John 10, works and unbelief. In verse 24, we have what is clearly a hostile interrogation. How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Messiah, tell us plainly. Jesus, in the last year of his ministry, the Jewish leadership still cannot figure out if he's the Messiah. This is not a simple demand for clarity. They've already, we know from John chapter 9, they've already decided that whoever confesses that Jesus is the Christ will be put out of the synagogue. This is not an informational interrogation. Jesus replies, I did tell you, but you do not believe. Now, this is an interesting response because Jesus, as, as if you've been following John's gospel, has certainly been indirect and elusive about his identity. And especially this question, are you the Messiah or are you not the Messiah? The only person in this gospel to this point to whom that has been said directly is the Samaritan woman in John 4, way up north, far, far away from Jerusalem. But he says, I've told you. Well, how? How How is it that he's told them? Well, he goes on to say, I've told you through the works that I'm doing in my Father's name. That's the testimony I've left. But you reject this testimony. So again, Jesus is reminding us that the works he does, the signs, the miracles, the healings, the teaching, these, these are not just religious theater, nor are they just power demonstrations, right? They, they point to the kingdom. They point to the person of Christ and the reality of the kingdom. They bear witness. They have a sign function, John says. And so Jesus is saying, in effect, look, of course, I haven't used the word Messiah. I haven't done that. But I've given you abundant evidence, abundant evidence of who I am, and you don't believe. I mean, that's simple enough. But as usual, the conversation is going to turn right here. And it's going to turn the way Jesus wants it to turn and to the topic he wants it to, to address. And again, his interlocutors are not expecting this. He says now, he says something like this. Now, let me tell you why it is you don't believe. Are you the Messiah or not? I already told you. Now, let me tell you why you don't believe me. So he says in verse 26, you don't believe because you're not my sheep. Now, don't let that slide past you. This is exactly backwards from the way most of us would put this. Right? We would say, you don't believe, therefore you're not my sheep. Which is also, by the way, true. But Jesus says, you don't believe because you're not my sheep. So again, we're face to face with this great divine mystery of election. 
Their unbelief is because they are not his sheep. These are bitter, stinging words to hear if you're on the receiving end of them. They are not in the flock Jesus is calling and gathering into one under himself, the one shepherd. And yet this election does not mitigate their human responsibility. Right? It's clear that their unbelief is freely chosen. That Jesus has done signs and they should have believed the signs. But we have this ironic situation then where because of human deceit and corruption, the signs of the kingdom, the signs of the kingdom can paradoxically harden people in their unbelief. And that's what's happened here. It's the same reason Jesus tells parables. You can look this up in Matthew 13. The parables have the same function. So secondly, I want to talk a little about the security of the sheep. Right? Jesus' sheep, we're told by contrast, now this is in verse 27, they hear or they listen to his voice. Those whom Jesus summons as shepherd, and we've seen this already in this discourse, those whom he summons come. They respond to the gospel of grace. Now, after our Lord says, they hear my voice, we might expect them to say, and they know me. That's not what we get. In the middle of verse 27, he says, and I know them. They hear my voice, and I know them. This is marvelous, right? It is, it's important that you know Jesus. But his knowledge, tender and intimate, of you is the crucial thing. His knowledge of you is the crucial thing. I remember the, uh, the late atheist Christopher Hitchens, one of his many complaints against Christianity was that having a God who just knows your every thought, who peers into the recesses of your soul, having that kind of a God, Hitchens said, is a lot like living in North Korea. Right? Like living in a totalitarian state. How could anybody want that kind of presence behind their neck? Well, this is a passage that sort of makes that evaporate as an objection. We saw this last week. When Jesus says, I know my sheep, that knowledge is synonymous with love. If anyone loves God, they are known by God. I know them. This absolutely exhaustive knowledge that Jesus has of you is absolutely exhaustive infinitely deep love of you. Right? We all yearn for this, in fact. And this is where the Hitchens position is, in fact, so deeply tragic. We yearn to be known and to be known in the depths of our being as who we really are and yet loved exhaustively there. And here, Jesus is telling us that he possesses such knowledge of his flock and that in spite of who we are, in the depth of our own alienation and twistedness and sin, there is his unfathomable love for you. And this kind of knowledge is liberating. Right? This is not North Korea. This is a foretaste of being face-to-face with the triune God. And it is, to anticipate what comes a little later in this passage, it's a sign of Jesus' divinity. No human shepherd can know you this way. 
And as a result of this, we're told at the end of verse 40, uh, 27 that Jesus' sheep, known and loved, hearers of the voice of Jesus, follow Jesus. Jesus is going somewhere. Sheep follow. He gives them, he says, eternal life and they shall never perish. Now, when you call yourself the giver of everlasting life, the one who eternally secures the safety of the flock, you're making yet another divine claim. And Jesus isn't finished making divine claims in this short passage, but I want to stop for a second and show you what he's doing. Right? Not only is he answering yes to the, to the I am the Messiah question, he's, do, he's, he's setting forth this astounding truth, probably shocking to most of his hearers, that in fact, I am the Messiah, and the Messiah is Yahweh, the God of Israel. It's certain to give vertigo to a first century Jew. So, he continues, no one's going to snatch these sheep out of my hand. This, this word for snatch here, it implies like a, a wrenching, like a, there's a certain violence involved in it. There are these great dangers to us in this world, beloved. Great, violent dangers which seek to snatch you out of the hand of the Lord Jesus Christ. Dangers without, dangers within. Jesus does not promise us here protection from earthly disaster or from tragedy or from heartbreaking suffering or loss. But he does say this, no one's going to get you out of my hand. I'm going to keep you in the face of human disappointment and pain and sorrow and the brokenness of this world. There is no health and wealth and prosperity promise here. There's the promise that nothing, none of the violence of the age can wrench you from my my hand, right? Belonging, belonging to our faithful Savior, as the great Heidelberg Catechism puts it, is our only comfort in life and death. It always reminds me of, if you're a parent, when your children are little. You know the experience of having to cross a busy street with them. Or you have to navigate through a parking lot or something, And their little, tiny, feeble hand is grasping your hand as you walk. I mean, you could at any moment swoop them up to avoid danger. But it's it's your grasp of them, not their grasp of you, which is their security. Right? I mean, this is obvious. And the same is true here. Jesus says, no one, no one will snatch them out of my hand. And by the way, just as an aside... It's preposterous, and it's a complete distortion of this text to say, as some do, but we can take ourselves out of Jesus' hand. That's nothing but emptying the text of all its comfort. The worst enemies we have are inside our own skin. I sometimes think we need no external enemies at all. We can do enough damage by ourselves. Besides, the text is a promise against all future uncertainty. No one will, future tense, take you out of Jesus' hand. There's no asterisk in the text. There's a lot of deep stuff here. 
put in very simple language. You could sum up a lot of what we need to know as the people of God in the two children's songs. Jesus loves me. This I know, for the Bible tells me so. And secondly, he's got the whole world, including me, in his hands. Infinite, unfathomable love. Sovereign, serene security. Jesus loves me, this I know, and that Jesus has the whole world in his hands. And our comfort lies in this, beloved. Our comfort is here. Our joy is here. Our security is here. It is not our feeble grasp of Christ. But it is his sovereign grasp of us. And the reason Jesus makes this assertion, you can see it in verse 29. He says, The Father who has given them to me is greater than all. Again, the sheep are a gift from the Father to the Son. The Father is greater than all here means greater than all opposition, all anxiety, all threats, all our own wickedness and deceit. The Father is greater than those things. He continues, no one can. Notice, it is not possible. Not, it's not just that no one will. No one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. So behind undergirding the Son's sovereign grasp of you as his sheep lies the Father's grip on you. The grip of God the Father Almighty, the maker of heaven and earth. And so maybe a more fitting metaphor is the two hands of God as two parents on either side of the little child crossing the street. The hand of Jesus, the hand of the Father. And so no one can sever you from Christ Ultimately, because no one can sever Christ from the Father. They exercise Jesus and the Father, one and the same saving power and might. He makes this explicit. Verse 30. I and the Father are one. Now, you can see what I mean. right? Jesus is, I don't know, six or seven verses into his reply. I think his inquisitors are in some water they did not expect to find themselves in. They've gotten a lot more than they bargained for with this are you the Messiah or not question. I and the Father are one. Note that this oneness with God exists with a distinction of persons. I and the Father. Two discrete persons are nevertheless one, identical in being. And so notice in this text, we have a claim not only to the deity of Christ... But we have a sort of cracking open of the mystery of the Holy Trinity. It's profoundly important to see that the Holy Trinity itself gets unveiled here where Jesus is talking about your life and your security and your protection. It's in the Good Shepherd discourse that Jesus starts to peel back this picture of God as triune. And he will continue to do this in the Upper Room discourses. I remember uh, Sinclair Ferguson, the great Scottish uh, preacher, now retired, I believe, talking about the upper room discourses, meaning meaning what happens in John chapter 13 through 17. And he says, how practically important must the Holy Trinity be if in that upper room, with the world crashing in on the disciples, 
we have the richest New Testament exposition of the nature of the Holy Trinity, of Jesus, the Father, and the Spirit, in that place. And that's what we have here. High theology, you might have heard me say, is highly practical. Highly practical. So I want to take one minute or so, or maybe two, to explain why this is practical. We've already seen it, I think. This relationship of Jesus to the Father is more practical than all the stuff practical preachers practically say practically all the time. Now, if you've been in my Sunday school class, you've heard me say this, tell this story. But I want to tell it again now. In the third and fourth centuries, for a couple of hundred years, even beyond that, the Christian church was racked with controversy over just this idea that Jesus is one with the Father. As I said, it's enough to give a first century Jew vertigo. It's very problematic. The question was, just what exactly is the nature of this oneness? What does this mean? It's an unavoidable question. There was one party known as the Arians. They were the majority party. They had the levers of power. They had control of the army. Often the emperor was Arian. Most of the bishops were Arian. They held that Jesus was of like substance to the Father. Like substance, similar substance, very, 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 very similar. Homoi usias was the word they used. Homoi usias. Now there was another party, the minority party, that held that Jesus was the same identical substance with the Father, homo usias, same substance. The difference between these parties, these two parties, came down to one letter in one technical Greek word. Is Jesus homo usias with the Father? Or is he homoi usias with the Father? One letter. Decades and decades, centuries even, of wrangling and of intrigue and of debate and of writing and of councils and of sermons. How impractical. I mean, how lacking in concrete, immediate application to the lives of ordinary people is this? One can easily imagine someone practical saying, hey, both sides agree that Jesus is the Son of God. Both sides agree that Jesus died for our sins. Both sides agree that Jesus was raised from the dead. Both sides agree that we have to trust in Jesus and not our good works to be saved. Both sides accept the same Bible. Both sides would agree on the commands we are to keep. And the good deeds we are supposed to do, enough with this debate. It doesn't touch down in anyone's life. It doesn't affect anything I have to do on Tuesday morning. It doesn't help me be a better father or a better parent. Or it doesn't help me in my vocation. But of course, this debate is about the difference between Christianity surviving or not. It's so practical that the practical people can't see its practicality. On one view, Jesus is a creature, the highest and most exalted creature. On the other view, Jesus is God. On one view, you get Western civilization. 
with its art and its architecture and its music and its literature and its philosophy and its Trinitarian theology. On the other view, we are at best all Jehovah's Witnesses. And that's a different culture and a different kind of civilization and a radically different kind of world. Chesterton said of these debates on who Jesus is and the formation of the church's understanding of the Trinity, Chesterton said, if you get these things wrong, you break all the Easter eggs in Europe. It's a marvelous statement, I know. So this arcane debate, homoousios or homoousios, this was more practical, more far-reaching than every practical sermon ever preached in the history of the church. There's a chasm of difference in this one letter. And it is no coincidence that it is at the time when the sheep need the most comfort, John 13, 14, 15, 16, and 17, that we have the most heavily rich depiction of the relationship between Jesus, the Father, and the Spirit. Practicality, then, should not be evaluated from inside the perspective of our vanishing puff-of-smoke lives. It can take centuries, beloved, to see if a thing is practical or not. And that's what happened in this case. But I think we can say a little bit more about this. We can say this. There is nothing, nothing, nothing more practical than getting the triune God and Jesus Christ right. Yes, it's true. You might not be able to draw a direct line from this to some facet of your life this week. But you have to have a wider view and a deeper view and a longer view of what is and isn't practical. The highest things are the most important things. And indeed, to those taking the long view, they're the most practical of things. Thinking appropriately so that we can worship and live and obey appropriately, that's the highest thing. So here in our text, Jesus refutes the ancient Arians, but he also refutes modern Jehovah's Witnesses who say that he is not God. He refutes those, and there are modern groups that say this, that say he's just a mask or a mode of God. So we have, beloved, the high theology of the creed. I believe in one Lord, not two lords, not a human and a divine Lord. One Lord, Jesus Christ, God of God, light of light, homo usius with the Father, of one substance with the Father. That is of the highest practical importance to us. Now, maybe some of you aren't convinced of this. I'll tell one more story. Many of you know I did my work on a, on a Scottish theologian named T.F. Torrance, arguably one of the greatest theologians in the second half of the 20th century. Torrance was, in World War II, he was a chaplain. And he was deployed in Italy. Um, he was a very young man. And twice during the war, he was in foxholes, where men in the foxhole were killed by explosions, and he escaped unscathed. Twice. One time... The man to his right was killed, and the man to his left was killed. He tells later two stories. He says, two things happened to me in my ministry. One in those foxholes, 
one many years later in parish ministry in Scotland. He said, I was tending to a young soldier who had maybe 20 minutes to live. Maybe 20 minutes to live. And the thing he wanted to talk to me about was, is this Jesus you talk about God? And then he said, and can, can I believe that the God you talk about is like Jesus? And Torrance says, he had a deep, dark suspicion, like many of us have, that behind the back of Jesus Christ, somehow back behind the face of Jesus, there's some dark, brooding God. Some God who's not turned himself toward us completely. Who's not given himself to us 100%. Who's not pledged himself to us body and soul. Who has not taken us into his divine hands and promised never to let us go. Torrance says, this is the homoousias question from a dying soldier. He says, years later, in Scotland, I'm visiting an elderly woman also dying in the hospital. And she asked me, and I, I remembered back from decades ago, I remember the soldier. She said to me, is God really like Jesus? Jesus is being one, being one. Not morally one, not mystically one, substantially one, identical in divinity with the Father is your very salvation. So it's in the grip of these two hands, Jesus' hand and the Father's hand, which are really one divine hand, that your life and your future rest secure. Finally, blasphemy and deity, the third point. Jesus goes on. When he says he's one with the Father, he doesn't mean like a prophet might be one, right? Like someone might be doing God's will. A prophet could say that. Jesus thinks he's one in some sort of fundamental being sense, and that provokes this rage. They understand what he's claiming, right? They understand that this is a blasphemous claim, and Jesus replies to them from Psalm 82. An amazingly surprising text to go to in the middle of this debate. He says, is it not written in your law? You are gods? See, human rulers, the civil magistrates in Israel were called gods, small g. Because they had a divinely instituted office. And they had a duty to administer the word. And so Jesus reasons, look, if those to whom the word of God came, the magistrates, if they're called gods, then what are you going to say about the one who is the word of God who came to them? Surely I am even more divine. And so it's another in a string of claims to divinity. And of course they seek to seize him. But he slips their grasp. So he has not only proven that he's the Messiah in this text, but he's made it clear that as such he's God incarnate. Now I'm going to conclude here. If the details and the complexities of Jesus' relationship to the Father, if some of them are lost on you, please grasp this. Right? This unity of being, this oneness, and this oneness of acting, holding you, that's the reason you've heard Jesus' voice. Right? That's the reason you know him and are known and loved exhaustively by him. That's the reason you're one of his flock. And you follow him. The good shepherd, the beautiful shepherd, is the divine shepherd 
He gives you eternal life such that you will never perish. You are in very good hands indeed. His hand and the Father's hand. And nothing in heaven or on earth shall wrench you out of it. And nothing is better than that. Praise be to God. Amen.